It is so incredibly exciting that the rest of the country and even the world is seeing right now what we have always known, that Georgia is extraordinary and some of the best organizers, some of the best freedom fighters, some of the most brilliant people are right here. And we have been doing this work for a long time. This moment didn't happen suddenly. It didn't happen because of any current or future president. It happened because of the hard work uh, and the love and the commitment of so many people right here in Georgia that know how to make things happen. Sarah Tatanchi is almost single-handedly responsible for delivering more than 17,000 ballots into the hands of voters sitting in jail during this past election cycle. Sarah is the executive director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is a nonprofit law firm that works to exonerate and mitigate those who are impacted by the criminal legal system in the Deep South. Sarah has been at her post for nearly two decades, and it's a big job. Georgia has the highest rate of correctional supervision in the country. Prison conditions and correctional reforms have only been more complicated because of COVID. This has been a really, really hard year. In my nearly 20 years of doing this work, um, I have never seen the prisons that were already so volatile, more chaotic or more violent um, as they've been this year. In this country, you're entitled to a lawyer if you can't afford one. But that wasn't even put into practice in Georgia until 2003, a direct result of Sarah's work. People can sit in prison because the system forgets that their time has been served or because they can't pay a fine. So every day, Sarah Tatanchi corrects these errors and strives for justice as much as for dignity. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed. And today I'm going to talk to Sarah about one of the South's highest crimes, being poor. The system is not broken. It's working exactly the way it was set up to work. And I'll also talk to Sarah about her formative experiences. I was in high school when the Persian Gulf War happened and I'm half Iraqi. Um, And so the impact of war has been real for me. Sarah and I spoke on the phone just before the runoff election. Sarah, I want to welcome you to The Women. Can you introduce yourself saying where you grew up, where you live now, and um, you know what you do with your time? Thanks so much, Rose. Um, well, my name is Sarah Tatanchi. I am the executive director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is a nonprofit law firm based in Atlanta that's worked for more than 40 years to bring equality, dignity, and justice for people who are impacted by the criminal legal systems in the Deep South. I am traveling the country to try to build support for the amazing work of my team on the ground. It is very rare for you to name a county out of 159 counties in Georgia that somebody immediately around me hasn't been to within the last year. I come to this work as a Georgian by choice. I've been in Georgia for uh, just shy of 25 years now. I came down here to go to college and I never left. Um, We grabbed you. You did. But I am a, I'm an immigrant to the United States. Uh, my family and I uh, immigrated here when I was very small from London. My father is Iraqi and my mother is Irish. Um, and uh, we So a 20th up, century love story. That's exactly right. Um, 
And we, we immigrated to Chicago, which is where I grew up. But I live here now in Atlanta with my husband and my six-year-old son. A big reason of why I do the work that I do is, is because of my son um, and because of the kind of world that I want to leave him. Um, so it, it's really my privilege to be able to have a career that allows me to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and it's been my honor to be at the Southern Center for almost 20 years. What are three things you're really proud of for the Southern Center for accomplishing during your tenure? It's really hard to narrow it down to three. But the first one I'll say is that very soon after I was hired, we uh, created a public defender system for the first time in Georgia in 2003, not that long ago. Um, The second thing I will say is that there's absolutely nothing like winning a case in the United States Supreme Court. And in my tenure, we've won three all capital cases, death penalty cases, all having to do with race discrimination. Um, And I'm very, very proud of those wins. And the third thing I'd say is that as a result of our work, our advocacy and our litigation, um, the issue of the criminalization of poverty has been rocketed into the national stratosphere. Even 10 years ago, people were not talking about or even acknowledging the fact that, that this has become such a phenomenon. And I really see us as the leaders who made that happen. I have been following your work for a couple of years. I really got to know your work through your passion and your ability to articulate the individual experience with systemic issues that just seem a little bit too big for my mind when I hear about criminal justice and when I hear about the monetization around poverty and criminalizing poverty. It's almost as if like that last scene in Men in Black where like the the galaxies become marbles and the marbles become playthings. Like it's just too big for my brain to like fully comprehend. And I feel like you really break it down in a way that I has empathy and I can also understand. Oh, thank you so much. And you're not alone in feeling just how big the system is. I frequently will describe it as a behemoth um, because it is it is just so much and so all-encompassing. Um, and even now, 20 years into my career and being on the front lines for reforms and for changes, I still struggle to fully wrap my arms and my brain around the many ways that the criminal legal system infiltrates our lives and our communities. And for those who are new to kind of the vast array of Georgia, Georgia isn't only the biggest uh, state east of the Mississippi, but we also have um, deep roots in the prison system and probation system. And I wonder if you could just kind of give us a snapshot, how many people are on parole and what does that look like comparatively? So right here in the U.S., Uh, you know, the monument to democracy and freedom, we are incarcerating more people than anywhere else in the world. The United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Um, And then if you bring the lens in a little bit closer, Georgia has the highest rate of correctional control in the nation. Correction, correctional control means uh, the rate, uh, the number of people who are in prison, in jail, on probation, or on parole. And we are right at the very top of it. One in 
14 Georgians is under some form of correctional control as opposed to one in 32 people at the national level. So we are more than twice the national rate right here. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because of our probation population. Uh, We sentence people extremely hard and we have the highest probation rate in the country because of the length of our sentences, but also because we have private probation companies that oversee misdemeanor sentences. So there's a profit motive that actually drives the number of people who are sentenced to probation here in Georgia. The alternative to sending somebody to serve time in prison, probation is serving your sentence in the community. Uh, People tend to think of that as a lighter term, but what we see in Georgia is that those terms are much longer. even up to 10 and 20 years of probation, uh, that a person has to be under under the thumb of the correctional system. Uh, the largest amount of new cases that are initiated every year are at the traffic court level. So that means the majority of Americans who experience the court system experience it through traffic court. It's been entirely normalized in the United States that we rely on traffic courts to generate revenue to balance the budgets of local cities and counties. And so basically, these courts are just there to make money. These courts have nothing to do with securing justice, but everything to do with securing money. What I would point to are these sort of notorious towns. If you go on road Mm -hmm. trips and you know... Mm -hmm. Don't speed through X County. Yeah, I never speed past Buford. Like my parents were always like, don't, don't, like be in the right lane whenever I'm 285 going like on the perimeter route. Yeah, no, same caution for if you ever have the the occasion to travel through a very small town in South Georgia called Warwick, Georgia. This town has less than 10,000 residents and it generated over it, it generated over a million dollars in in traffic violations. Um, you know, a couple of years ago. So police officers are under pressure to meet quotas, um, to issue tickets so that the city or county that they work for Uh, has enough revenue to keep going. And so people report to court and judges, you know, will look at a person and assess a fee and a fine. Um, And for a person like me, I'm able to just write a check on that day. But if I was a person who didn't have that, didn't have the money in my account to do that, I would have an entirely different experience. In Georgia, um, I would probably be put on under the supervision of a private probation company, which basically functions as a collection agency to make me pay my debt. But the problem is, is that my debt wouldn't just be what that fine and fee that the judge assessed, but an additional amount that the probation company assesses. So what winds up happening is that a person with less money to begin with winds up paying two and three and even four times more than I would. Um, Beyond that, these private probation companies have quasi-law enforcement capability, and they can seek warrants for the arrest of people who don't show up to pay um, the amount of money that they're due. Again, this has nothing to do with public safety. These aren't crimes that are violent. These are very average traffic tickets. Um, But the, the kind of experience that people who don't have as much money have versus those who do is is a notion that is too wide to navigate. Uh, it sounds to me as if like there was some really formative people in your life and people in your career that really um, 
made you live this experience almost personally? And I'm wondering if maybe you could share an example. We were just talking about these low-level offenses that people report to court on. Um, There was a man that we had the privilege of working with and representing. I'll call him uh, Mr. E. And he was from uh, a town in South Georgia called Bainbridge. It's a very small Mm -hmm. town. Uh, This man was a senior citizen, is a senior citizen, um, intellectually limited, and utterly destitute. The house that he lived in did not have running water. And uh, he got ticketed for burning leaves in his yard without a permit. Which also people burn leaves in their yard all the time. Like, it's not a big deal. Yes, it, that's exactly right. And gets to the what we were talking about before about the pressure to generate revenue for local cities and counties. And so uh, Mr. E was um, cited for burning leaves without a permit. Um, when he reported to court, he was assessed a fine of $500. Now, his only income is food stamps, so there was no way that he would be able to pay it. And so he got put on private probation under the supervision of a private for-profit company, which then assessed him an additional $528 um, for supervision fees. Uh, so this, his debt all of a sudden went over $1,000, which may as well have been a million dollars for his ability right. to ever pay it. Right. And Mr. E left court that day in handcuffs, in a police van, and was taken straight to the jail because he could not afford to pay a $250 down payment that this private for-profit company was insisting that he pay that day. And he was in jail for a couple weeks until uh, some of the people around him were able to pay that $250 off. Um, But we were fortunate that he that he was willing and courageous enough to push back against that company and against that policy in Bainbridge. And as a result of his courage um, and, and, and the incredible work of my team, we not only recovered all the money that that company had taken from people like Mr. E, but we also shut down that company once and for all. Um, and you know, it is my hope that in the life of the Southern Center, we will succeed in shutting down all of those private probation companies. Because like I said before, they have absolutely nothing to do with justice or fairness or public safety and everything Mm -hmm. to do with making money. These kinds of infractions that would never even be levied against um, a wealthy person, can you can only get away with this level of cruelty against the most marginalized Uh, It just really points to me how we've lost all common sense. Um, We see judges who who will have people standing in front of them and who will send them to donate blood to raise money for their fee. Uh, You know, another woman we had the privilege of representing reported to court as a witness because she had been, um, her boyfriend had beaten her up. Uh, and and she had been subpoenaed to come testify against him. Is this the case of Cleopatra Harrison? That's exactly right. So um, Cleopatra shows up to court, and like many survivors of domestic violence, she's very, very scared about testifying against um, her boyfriend because she doesn't know what's going to happen if she does. And so she tells the court, she tells this judge, um, I, I would prefer not to testify. And that judge looks at her and says, that's fine, but you've wasted the court's time. So I'm now going to assess you a $150 victim fee. And uh, as she walked out of the courtroom, she was thrown up against the wall by a police officer who was yelling at her about lying 
about what happened. And then she was arrested because she couldn't afford to pay that $150 fee. This is a survivor of domestic violence. She served time. Um, she had trauma that the courts, that the legal system made her life and her experience so much worse than it already was. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's unforgivable. So when you see this happening at such a local level, and even um, what do Senate races mean to you? You know, I, I think you joked about like, well, our work isn't going to change just because Trump is in office. We're going to continue to win. We're going to continue to fight. But when we look at the balance of power maybe changing in the Senate because of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, um, what are some things that you've been thinking about since, um, you know, mid-November? Yeah. Um, well, and just just to clarify, we're still going to fight. We may not always win, but um, we're certainly going to try. Uh, and I will say the last four years have made our work a lot harder. Um, okay. What I see happening is really the tides are turning in our state. Uh, as Stacey Abrams has pointed out on numerous occasions, the demographics have changed and there is ample opportunity here for us to just to lift up people that are not traditionally heard, whose voices aren't as loud um, as uh, the kind of white establishment that has run Georgia for such a long time. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, as the South goes, so goes the nation. And I have seen that to be true in so much of my work. Um, I've seen it to be true in some of the, the more negative things that have happened here. But then I've also seen extraordinary work, like the work that Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project did prior to the 2018 election, um, which produced unprecedented results. Even though Stacey did not win, uh, more people voted, more people of color voted. And, and that path that she established has been replicated through the whole nation and is to be thanked for uh, the victory of Joe Biden. So can you describe the work that you did this year with absentee ballots? Absolutely. Uh, so on any given day in Georgia, there's 40,000 people inside our county and city jails. And wow. many of those people are eligible to vote. I think the thing to remember is that people who are held in jail are held generally, not exclusively, but generally pre-trial. So they haven't been convicted of anything. Georgia's voting laws are extremely complicated as it applies to people uh, who are impacted by the criminal legal system. And so we knew that there was a gap. Um, and even though there were massive voter registration efforts happening across our state, we knew that this particular population was a population that would be missed by the more traditional voter registration plans. And so we set out to, uh, to help fill that gap. Wow. You can pay your taxes from your checking account to the government easier than you can register to vote in Georgia. That's absolutely right. There are wonderful local NAACP affiliates who go into the jails and register people. And the thing is, it's a matter of whether the sheriff will allow that to happen. So we created a Know Your Rights document, and then we went through and we collected information of who were in the jails. Um, and we, um, over, between the primary, the general, and now the runoff, we've been in touch with over 15,000 
people who are incarcerated in jails across Georgia, um, giving them the Know Your Rights document, providing them with absentee ballot request forms because you have to apply to get an absentee ballot here in Georgia, uh, and then giving them information about how to get those ballots in. Um, and your ability to engage in that should not be impacted um, if you happen to be in a jail pre-trial at the time of an election. So how many ballots were you able to get to folks and, um, and how many jails and how many counties? Um, so prior to the primary in general, we sent out about 7,000 uh, voter registration packets to people in about Damn, 10, Sarah. Yeah, in, in about 10 counties in Georgia. Um, 10 counties with the biggest populations and the biggest jails. And then uh, for this runoff, we've done an additional 10,000, um, so even more this time, and to, uh, to about 15 counties, again, most populous, biggest jails, uh, urban areas. There was a case that you talked about on um, Justice in America podcast with Josie Duffy Rice and Clint Smith about um, an individual case of voter fraud that went terribly wrong. So um, Olivia Coley Pearson is a city commissioner from South Georgia. She was actually the first uh, first black person elected to the city commission where she lives ever. Wow. And she served there for 19 years. Uh, and in the course of her service, she was always involved in elections, driving people to the polls, getting people registered, um, watching, watching the polls, things like that. And in 2012, she was arrested for assisting a first-time voter who had asked for help with using Georgia's electronic voting machines. She didn't touch the machine. She didn't tell her who to vote for. She verbally instructed her from several feet away about putting your card in the machine, pressing the buttons, and then taking your card out. That is all she did. And she was prosecuted uh, actually by the same DA that uh, George Barnhill, that declined to prosecute the people who uh, chased down and killed Ahmaud Arbery. He didn't see necessary to prosecute in that case, but he saw it necessary to prosecute Ms. Oh Pearson my God. for this act, which he deemed to be voter fraud. Ms. Pearson went to trial. She was looking at a, a potential 10 years in prison for this offense. Um, and she went to trial once. It ended in a mistrial. And George Barnhill prosecuted her again. And we had the privilege of representing her in her second trial. And let me tell you, she was acquitted by a jury in 19 minutes. Um, and she's a free woman. She's a free woman, but she's a targeted woman in her community. She's a targeted woman. And I'm getting I have, so riled up. <laughs> I'm so riled up. I'm so mad about this. I, 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 it, I'm, I almost can't see straight. 2012, she was arrested for this. She was acquitted in 2018. The day before she went to her trial, she was having conversations with her grandchildren about the reality of grandma going to prison. The day after trial, she sat with my colleague who represented her instead and was talking to her about going to law school, um, which is amazing. Oh, my God. I just got goosebumps. She wants to go to law school? Amazing. But so Ms. Pearson has continued her work. And just a few weeks ago, playing the same roles, she was uh, arrested once again. In 2020, she was driving people to the polls. The same woman that instigated her arrest in 2012 instigated this arrest 
Oh, my God. And she was taken to jail for criminal trespass at a polling location. Um, There's video of everything. We have reviewed it. We know her to be entirely innocent and entirely targeted. So she's going to be going to court um, in a couple weeks uh, to respond to this charge. And we'll be representing her again. Um, How is this any different than like the 1950s where black people were targeted in their communities and... This example really highlights the danger of a voter fraud and how it can it can be misconstrued and levied against um, vulnerable individuals in their communities. She is a targeted person in her community. She is a vocal, outspoken leader, a black leader um, who has been the thorn in the side of the white establishment and. What we see here is the criminal legal system being used as a tool to tamp down her voice, to intimidate her, to cage her, literally cage her. And, you know, if your listeners have not yet watched uh, Ava DuVernay's incredible documentary, The 13th, I can't recommend it enough because it charts the evolution of our modern day criminal legal system from chattel slavery to reconstruction and to the Black Code laws and Jim Crow laws uh, through convict leasing, um, and then through the civil rights movement where we really saw the use of it to tamp down dissent and leaders of color. And nothing has changed. Um, And of course it has evolved into mass incarceration as we know it, but these same tactics of social control, especially against people of the color, and especially against Black people, um, continues to be incredibly real, and it continues to be truly a goal of this system. The system is not broken. It's working exactly the way it was set up to work. Your compass is so set on what is just that you don't even sound tired or overwhelmed by these realities. I just wonder if like there was a formative experience where you really saw something or maybe you learned something from your parents in a way. I do have incredible parents, incredible parents, Um, and they are generous and they are kind and they are, um, they have always done their best to help as many people as they can. Um, and I, I, I was in high school when the Persian Gulf War happened, and I'm half Iraqi, and much of our wow. family was still in Iraq at the time. Um, and basically, there's been a war in Iraq in our home, in our home country for every, in every decade of my life. Um, and so the impact of war has been real for me. Um, And then following the Persian Gulf War and the nearly decade of sanctions that the United States put on Iraq, which were absolutely devastating, which the story of which are still has still not truly been elevated in the way that I think it should be. uh, My father became an advocate uh, against those sanctions. Uh, He is a physician um, and he used his power and his influence to even go to Congress to testify against uh, the sanctions in Iraq that were keeping school children from having pencils and paper, um, not to mention doctors from having things as simple as band-aids and sutures. Um, that that really, you know, while the decades of war have taken a toll, and of course tyranny under Saddam Hussein um, have taken a toll on our on that nation, 
the sanctions um, are the part that destroyed the country more than almost anything else. So that leadership and that engagement and that responsibility was impressed upon me really early. My father is incredibly brave. um, And I do recall uh, seeing his sadness and his anger. Um, I remember him writing op-eds and and just toiling over getting it right. Um, I remember countless advocacy letters on behalf of members of our family trying to get them refugee and asylum status. Um, you know, and to this day, he collects articles about Iraq and about the struggle and about all of it, um, you know, still in paper form, won't get rid of them. You know, it is it is something that is still uh, very much a part of that struggle very much tears at him, um, even though we're in a very different era now. Um, you know, another big thing I think about was that I, uh, I worked in a domestic violence shelter when I was in college. Um, and I will never forget uh, the revelation that I had um, that mm. the most dangerous time for typically a woman who had experienced violence was immediately following the release from jail of the person who had been violent with her. And, you know, it made me start putting two and two together as far as we're taking people who have done violent things and putting them in places that are inherently violent and then crossing our fingers and hoping that they come out less violent. It makes absolutely no sense. And it really, for me, um, kind of steered my life in a different direction um, as far as wanting to change that violent system uh, that continues to be violent today in the hopes of true safety and true justice for people who do experience really awful things. I'm going to ask a question that I feel like um, is hard for me to ask um, because it makes me uncomfortable spending a lot of time in New York. I come in contact with people who are destitute all the time. And one thing that I hear you talk about a lot that you haven't lost is your value um, of dignity um, on everybody, no matter where they come from. Or, And I'm wondering how you learned that. So Brian Stevenson puts it so eloquently when he talks about the need Mm. for people to be proximate um, to human suffering, to to completely Mm -hmm. understand it. So that that critical nature of proximity. And each day we make decisions whether or not we want to be proximate. Uh, And the incredible thing about doing this work and, and the team that I am a part of is that we are people that are choosing to be proximate um, to some of the most horrible things that are happening in in our country. I do this so I can understand because there is such an urgent need to make change. Um, And there is just absolutely nothing like um, sitting with somebody and hearing their story. Just before I got on this call, I was talking with an advocate about the treatment of an incarcerated pregnant woman. And as a mom myself, um, knowing that when women give birth in prison, they get two hours with their baby until their baby is ripped from their arms. And then they get sent back to a maximum security facility. I mean, hearing that 
drives me to work harder and do more and to take risks that I might not otherwise. Um, I need to be courageous because I'm in a position of power and I have to use my power for good and not evil. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a daily decision. Um, this has been a really, really hard year. In my nearly 20 years of doing this work, um, I have never seen the prisons that were already so volatile, more chaotic or more violent um, as they've been this year. And that's a, as a consequence of incredibly poor leadership um, in the Department of Corrections, but also due to COVID. Every single prison is a COVID hotspot, not just for the people behind bars, but for the people who work there. Um, and it is a crisis and it is unfolding and it is horrible. And every week there are more horrible things. Um, and there are weeks that I feel like I need to be hard um, because it is the only way I can continue to move through. And at that point, I know I need to come back to my heart um, and ground myself in why I'm doing this work, um, ground myself in the vision of a world that is free from the death penalty, free from mass incarceration, free from racial injustice, and keep working because it is urgent and it is needed. What's it like being a woman at the top of your organization and working within this um, system? It's definitely been a journey um, and it has evolved over time. Before I was the executive director of the Southern Center, I was the public policy director, which meant I spent all my time at the Georgia General Assembly. Um, Holy shit. What a shit show. <laughs> yes. And, you know, so I had to know how to get my work done there. Speaking about being a woman, like appearances matter too. And uh, as a mixed race, non-black woman of color, uh, I have talked with my colleagues about how um, I would notice a difference going to the General Assembly on the days that I didn't wear glasses and the days that I blew out my hair to be straight as opposed to wearing it my natural, wild, curly self. I would have better days when I looked more white and uh, American. Um, so that's real. You know, the thing that's been wonderful about this, and, and we talk about, in our work, we talk a lot about the value that every single person is worth more than their worst moment, worth more than their worst decisions. And when we talk about that, we're frequently applying that to the, to the people that we, we have the privilege of representing who are in prison um, or on death row. Uh, but, you know, this premise is very real throughout life. One of the things I'm very, very good at is um, bringing in unlikely allies to our work. And so like when I'm talking with, for example, one of my favorite people is the sheriff of Milledgeville. Um, and he and I talk. Milledgeville was the old capital of Atlanta, it like hundred year, over a hundred years ago. It is. And he will call me and he will say, how's my favorite liberal? Um, <laughs> and I'll say, how's my favorite sheriff? And, you know, the thing is, is that even though he and I disagree and he'll be the first to tell you, how we disagree, we will, he, will, he will battle me to the end on the death penalty, that we have found common ground. And that's just it, that we are all worth more. We all are more complicated. We are all more complex. And so that has been a guiding principle for me um, as a woman, as a leader, like see the complexity of people and find that way to connect. And that is, that is helpful in, in, in identifying whatever that person's true north is 
and whether or not we can actually work together. And some of some of our best victories have been done because we've been able to pull in unlikely allies. What are the arguments that work for them? You know, there's definitely an element to getting to know us and seeing that we don't have three heads, that we're not, you know, over the top, whatever, that we're that we're reliable, that our information is undisputable. Uh, that's a big, that's definitely a part of it. But also, you know, the commonality of, of values that we have as Americans and as Georgians, that we all believe in, in family and in freedom um, and in the right to kind of have, a, have an opportunity to fully pursue life. Um, with conservatives, you know, talking about uh, the fiscal side of things is certainly helpful. Um, but there's also a lot of libertarian leading conservatives here in Georgia. So uh, that kind of individu- individual rights piece um, and not, uh, you know, the overreach of government has also been a really effective talking point as we reach out to unlikely allies. I feel like I've won a lot of conservatives over explaining why the death penalty is actually way more expensive yes, than other forms exactly of incarceration. Right. And that's really eye opening. Even people like Newt Gingrich are like, what? Um, former Congressman Bob Barr has signed on to numerous amicus briefs on um, on behalf of our clients' cases, uh, death penalty clients' cases, um, for that very reason. It's expensive. Um, it's overreach of the government. The government should not be in the business of uh, eliminating human life. Um, and so there are interesting relationships to build. From someone who has worked in the same organization for almost 20 years, what are some things that, you know, you feel you had to grapple with to really step away from the work that you were doing and become more of a leader? Um, well, I can tell you that every year around this time, I do soul, I do some soul searching about uh, my role and mm. whether or not this is still the role for me. One mm. of my biggest fears is to be, and this is a phenomenon in nonprofits, uh, executive directors that overstay their effectiveness. Um, And it is incredibly uh, harmful to the organizations that they love when this happens. And I do not want to, I will not do that. And so I do this kind of yearly check-in. And I will tell you that I, today, still feel so fortunate to be in this position. I am still learning so much. And I think this is a, that's a key part of this journey is to never ever feel like you've got it all figured out and to always stay open, to always be learning. I am, I am not an expert on prison abolition and yet it is such a phenomena um, and abolition of the police that has come up in my field this year. So I have been spending all of this year, reading everything I can, listening to everything I can, talking to people who know about it to try so I can I can understand it to the best that I can and make my own judgment about it. Um, you know, if I approach that with a closed mind, um, it would be detrimental to me individually, to my organization, and to our coalition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's really been key. Um, and and you know, one of the one of the biggest learning curves I had in stepping into this role. My predecessor, the longtime executive director of the Southern Center, is is one of the nation's foremost capital defense lawyers, Steve Bright. He is known for his um, oratory skills and his public speaking that leave people who heard him 25 years ago, they still remember that speech. He sounds like a, a real version of Matlock. 
right, right, right. Um, and so I, you know, I was I was not a public speaker coming into this role, and that was one no, of the hardest I'm things for to me. Learn that I just it wasn't my thing, and so it was incredibly intimidating, and I just had to push through it. Um, but one of the ways I did it was by just speaking to every single group that would have me, whether it was, you know, a more typical <laughs> like college class or university group to like a Girl Scout troop um, or, you know, a, a Rotary Club and things like that. And just speaking as much as I could and finding my vibe and finding my own ways of doing it. And, and you know, as a result of that work, it's now become one of my most favorite parts of my job. And I relish opportunities to get in front of a group and, and share with them. Um, the work that we do. Wow, that is so cool. For our lightning round, I like to call it truth or truth. We go light after we go deep. I love it. Um, (laughs) So one of my first questions for you is, um, and I know this is kind of really bittersweet with COVID, but um, this year, your, uh, your workspace like more than doubled. Um, And I was wondering if there was something that you were excited about doing a little indulgent with your new elbow room. Oh, my goodness. The thing that I love the most about the new space is that we are able to bring in our community. And the first floor is all a gathering space. Before we shut down, we were able to host some extraordinary meetings and events from our coalition, from our partners. uh, And the energy of the space just feels amazing. And I know great things are going to keep happening there. God, it sounds like a rave, like compared to like what we're living now. I'm like, ooh, people are close together and dreaming big. That sounds so sexy. What's the best thing about um, having a six-year-old? He brings joy to me every single day. And he helps me create really healthy boundaries around my work because, you know, there just has to be a point where I have to stop and turn my attention to him because he's going to tell me something hilarious or amazing or insightful, or we're going to go do something really fun. I love that. Is there anything that you're excited about for any of the four candidates? Reverend Warnock and I have been close personal friends and and, uh, co-conspirators for more than a decade. I sat with him uh, throughout Troy Davis's case. Troy Davis was an innocent man who Georgia executed in 2011. Reverend Warnock was the family's um, pastor, and I was a close friend of the family and of Troy's. And uh, I know he's going to do amazing things. And of course, I'm speaking in my individual capacity um, as I say this, but uh, he is the real deal. And his vision for a world free from mass incarceration is one that I want so deeply. Um, do you have a song that you like to listen to in the car after you've won a case? You know, I frequently will go back. I'm an old, rather odd deadhead. and <laughs> I would some, not have guessed that. I know. I was the the girl in the lot wearing the black tie-dye. Um, no. I'm not a typical deadhead at Did all. Did you have but- Jenko's? At one point, Did you? Life, I had Jankos. No, <laughs> holy moly! But mostly, I had a lot of I had a I had a lot of tie dyes and sarongs and things like that. But okay. um, I frequently will go back to Touch of Gray, which is the one with the chorus of "I will get by" or "We will get by, we will survive." 
And it's just very triumphant and it makes me feel good inside. Uh, and it brings me back to my roots of my teenage years. Sarah, thank you so much for your time and generosity of spirit. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk with you. The Women is a Rose Reed production. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Thank you to our team, Nora Kipnis and Gail Reed. And a very special thanks to Clara Green and Wendy Zuckerman and Todd Smith. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back next week with a new episode.